You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, your host, and with me are Andy Spey, Will Doran, Lauren Horsch, Danielle Shemtab, and Colin Campbell. Uh, this was a big week. Of course, we had the tragic school shooting in Parkland, Florida, uh, with 17 dead and a 19-year-old high school student arrested, uh, and there was some North Carolina fallout uh, from the shooting that we'll talk about later Um, This was the week that lawmakers adjourned uh, their session until most likely May, and after passing uh, a big bill that included uh, a class size fix and uh, a measure that took away a pipeline fund from Governor Roy Cooper, uh, his control, and Cooper announced that he uh, would allow the bill to become law without signing it, even though um, he has a lot of problems with it. Um, and the legislature did not act on uh, pollution related to um, Gen X. Um, but Danielle, uh, let's start with you. You interviewed um, Mickey Mashaw this week, and we talked a little bit on last week's Domecast about how he's retiring after decades in the legislature. Uh, you sat down with him this week, uh, so I'm interested to hear uh, what he had to say. Yeah, so we talked a lot about his political career. He's been um, at the North Carolina House of Representatives for more than 40 years, and he'll be retiring at the end of his term this year. So we talked about, one, his relationship with Martin Luther King. He was actually good friends with Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was the one who encouraged him to get into politics. And then um, he talked about this a little bit on the floor, but he almost didn't go into it after, of course, um, King was shot and then sort of had this renewed interest to live on his legacy. Um, And so one of the things we talked about was all the progress that he said that they had made in the state um, and how he felt like some of the past couple years had been undoing that progress. So I'm going to play a clip now from him. All right. Let's listen to Mickey Michaud. I got there when I was the third African American to serve in the legislature. And uh, we realized, uh, Henry Joy and I both realized that we had not only the constituency that sent us there, but we had a larger constituency, which was the African-American population of the state that had not had any uh, particular representation during Mm -hmm. that period of time uh, until Henry got there in 68. But I guess guess what I'm I'm getting at is the fact that we worked through these things in the state. Uh, We began to get because we had people on both sides of the fence working together and not pulling against each other, we were beginning to make amazing leaps and bounds in terms of how people were going to work together to make the state a a, a darn good state. Uh, And it was working until, uh, I'd say, 2010 when the other party came in and took over and began to break, to tear those things down that we had built up. Uh, now you see things taking a backward step. You see the, the steps that we made in voting, the steps that we made uh, particularly in, in bringing people together are being pulled apart. Uh, and you get attacks on the LGBT community, mm-hmm. all of these things happening now. Uh, to, in my mind, retrogression, and uh, it's 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 uh, 
And I, I don't know where we're going from this point, unless people can come back together, as we did before, to push this, make this progress that we were making, uh, to keep it moving forward. Mm -hmm. But it takes a mindset uh, to do that. All right, and we're back with Domecast, and it was a busy week in the legislature um, with a whole lot going on related to the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Um, and Colin, uh, tell us a little bit about the um, bill that Cooper signed into law. You, I think, were at his press conference. Um, excuse me, the bill that Cooper says he will allow to go into law. There's a big difference. Um, you were at his press conference. Um, why did he say he signed it even though it had a um, more than – it takes away that more than $50 million uh, fund related to the pipeline that he would control. Well, this is a situation where the legislature sort of put Cooper kind of between a rock and a hard place, uh, and they did so deliberately. Um, they knew that Cooper felt pretty strongly about the class size uh, mandate being addressed uh, so that schools don't have to uh, shrink the sizes of uh, elementary school classes for next year and potentially have to reassign arts and PE type teachers uh, to other teaching roles. Um, and so he really wanted this to go into effect and, and recognized that it needed to go into effect fairly soon. He also supports the uh, pre-K provision in there to add funding to uh, eliminate the waiting list for the state's uh, pre-kindergarten programming. But his big issue with this, and this is why he didn't want to actually put pen to paper and sign the thing, uh, was the issue with the, around the pipeline fund, this $58 million uh, agreement that the Cooper administration reached with uh, the developers of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, the natural gas pipeline, uh, running roughly along I-95 in eastern North Carolina. Uh, they would pay into this fund. The fund would then be controlled by uh, a co committee uh, essentially appointed by the governor through an executive order. Um, and the legislature, in part of their bill, felt like it was inappropriate for Cooper to have control of this. They've been uh, bashing him over it, calling it a slush fund, and suggesting that it was perhaps a quid pro quo, which Cooper denies. Uh, so their bill would uh, redirect that money into uh, the school districts along the pipeline route. They each get a share of the $58 million, and most of them seem very happy to get that money. Uh, but Cooper's arguing that um, because this two- or three-page agreement spelled out the uses for the money and uh, among the possible uses was not used for public education. He's concerned that uh, the bill will, uh, the deal will get invalidated. As of now, we've not heard any complaints from Duke or Dominion who negotiated the deal uh, that they're upset with the direction the legislature has taken. Uh, I guess we'll find out more on that in the future. But that was a, a key sticking point for the governor. Um, and the other issue he had with the, the bill was the changes to the state uh, board of elections. Um, we're currently awaiting, I think, either yesterday or today, a lower court getting the Supreme Court ruling that invalidated the legislature's plan to have a uh, merged elections and ethics board that would have been uh, four Democrats and four Republicans, so an even split among the parties instead of having the governor's party have a majority on the elections board, as has been the case in the past. Uh, Cooper won that lawsuit with the Supreme Court. They struck down the law. But the sort of the question is now the details of uh, whether we're going to have uh, separate elections and ethics boards, uh, what exactly is going to be the composition of the elections board uh, if it's in uh, the, sort of directed in Cooper's favor. So in this bill, the legislature sort of wanted to jump ahead of the courts and propose a solution, and their solution is simply to add a ninth member to the existing uh, law that uh, has the four and four split between Democrats and Republicans, and the ninth member could not be either a Democrat or Republican, so they could pick a libertarian or an independent uh, or something like that. Um, and that's something Cooper objects to because he says uh, they're directly violating what the um, 
courts ruled in favor of, which was the essentially the going back to the old system of having separate ethics, separate elections, and elections being in the governor's party. Well, it's really weird if you look at it just from the you know the partisan standpoint of the makeup of the board. You know, two years ago it was you know majority the governor's party, and then a year ago it was an even split between you know Republicans and Democrats, and now it'll actually be the governor's party won't even have a majority or even half. They'll have less than half, you know, since obviously four out of nine. Um, so yeah, I can I can see where Cooper would not be very pleased with this uh, this change. Yeah, that's going and this press conference was interesting. This is probably the angriest I've seen Cooper, who's a pretty mild-mannered guy, uh, in a news conference since uh, right before he took office when they had that special session to pass a lot of these laws originally. So this is definitely, uh, he views as sort of a, a continuation of that. Of course, the Republicans say, we really think a bipartisan board is a good idea, so we'll we'll tweak it if the court says so. But we really support this idea and don't think the governor's party should control this agency. Andy, uh, the governor uh, got a letter just before he made this statement about not signing the bill that uh, told him to recuse himself. Uh, this came from Phil Berger and Tim Moore, the legislative leaders, uh, and part of what they cited was an ethics complaint that had just been filed um, against Cooper over the pipeline fund. Um, so tell us about that. Right. Uh, Donald Bryson, the new president of uh, the Civitas Institute, filed a uh, complaint alleging that uh, Cooper may have personally accepted gifts uh, in the form of this slush, this so-called slush fund um, when he agreed to this deal uh, for the 57, what is it, $57.8 million. Um, and so they, Bryson filed that complaint on the same day that they were uh, encouraging uh, Cooper to step back and so it seemed it seemed to all happen um, at once this complaint and then their uh, their pressure on Cooper to let their bill fly through without touching it um, but uh, so uh, state laws say that it, ethics laws say that uh, legislators the governor no one can benefit specifically um, through legislation that they vote on. Um, and so that that's what Bryson and Civitas are alleging, is that, you know, this, this mitigation fund could directly benefit Cooper in some way or ca constitute a gift. Um, whether or not that's true, it remains to be seen. But the complaint itself sure was um, at the forefront of all the Atlantic Coast Pipeline news on, what was it, uh, Wednesday and Thursday. And it sounded like they were trying to say that uh, he may have made the the pipeline permit, uh, the permit to run the pipeline through North Carolina, a condition uh, of having this money um, and the pipeline companies giving this money. And they, um, people who've been making that claim have pointed to uh, a Democratic lawmaker who pretty much said as much, uh, but then she kind of walked her statement back this week. That's right. Uh, Representative Pricey Harrison of Greensboro um, gave a quote to WRAL's, I think it was Laura Leslie, saying that uh, the the fund was a condition uh, of the permit. And then she walked that back. She says she emailed REL, she emailed us, saying that uh, she misspoke. You know, she's speaking without direct knowledge of uh, how things happened and how the fund was agreed to. And so she has been trying to walk it back. But, you know, from a PR standpoint, uh, you know, the, the the Republican message is out there that this was all shady. Um, I don't know if her attempts to correct her record have gotten very far. We reported about it, but... Um, 
So they've tied this to um, the pipeline and tried, and Republicans have said that, that these are all connected, um, which Cooper denies. Some Republicans have also um, sort of seized on uh, the fact that Cooper owns some land down there by the pipeline route, uh, which our own Dan Kane reported this week. Uh, he owns some uh, land, that, some property, he and his brother, uh, that would be near where the pipeline is going to be running along I-95. So there's there's a whole lot of um, sort of uh, claims that Cooper's facing. What what did he say about all this, Colin, at the at the press conference? Yeah, he um, admitted yes, he does own this property, and that his family owns property because they've uh, been a residents of Nash County for a very long time. But he said there would be very um, the the plan in this uh, pipeline fund was to eventually lay out an executive order that would explain how the money would be allocated, and there would be very uh, strict conflict of interest provisions in that, and the governor himself wasn't going to be involved uh, in those decisions going forward as to exactly who would get the money. Um, so that was sort of his response to that. He also uh, strenuously denied that this was any sort of uh, uh, quid pro quo situation where um, the pipeline companies had to pay into this fund before they could get uh, the money or, or get the permits from DEQ. I will note, I found out this week that DEQ actually is charging the pipeline uh, separately for a different fund. Um, as part of getting those permits in January, uh, they had to agree to pay what, uh, according to the invoices that I was provided, about $6 million into uh, a mitigation fund for like stream buffers and wa water quality issues. Uh, that's pretty much standard procedure for uh, any kind of construction permit along these lines. Um, the DEQ has a formula they use to figure out how many acres are impacted. Uh, the developer can either do the mitigation projects themselves or they can pay the state and the state will do it. So that's what's already in there. And, and that was indeed something they had to do in order to get the fund. But this, according to the Cooper folks, is uh, very much separate. And that's been stressed both by the governor in his press conference um, and then in the letter responding to legislators. They sent a list of 15 questions over. And uh, late Thursday, there was a response from uh, Christy Jones, who's Cooper's chief of staff, to most of those questions. I think she, she ducked a few of them that I didn't think were fully answered. But um, a lot of the concerns now seem to be about how did the pipeline come together or the fund come together. And Cooper is saying now through this letter that it originally was economic development leaders uh, along the pipeline route. Uh, suggested they want a better way to be able to tie in these communities to the natural gas itself so they could benefit from having these utilities in their backyard. Um, so he's basically saying, oh, we didn't come up with this. Yeah. This was uh, rural Yeah, local leaders came up with it at some point, uh, and they don't really specify exactly how the governor's office got involved, but at some point, uh, William McKinney, who's the governor's general counsel, and uh, Ken Udy, who's his senior advisor and ostensibly the number two or three guy over there, um, were involved with coming up with the terms of this agreement, um, and it, all of that was separate from what was happening with DEQ. Okay. And uh, the um, memora memorandum of understanding between the pipeline companies and Cooper, uh, or Coop and Cooper's uh, aides, um, doesn't lay out a whole lot of detail for how all this would work. Um, but he sort of he said, well, there's going to be an executive order that would lay out kind of what the conflict of interest provisions are. Um, Lauren, you've read through the, the memorandum, right, and uh, taken a look at how it compares to ones that have happened in other states. What, what did you notice in there? Um, well, I noticed that North Carolina is very, you know, open-ended. I mean, we do have that provision for the executive order, so we'll find out a little bit more there. But so right now we only have it. We only have Virginia's memorandum of understanding to compare it to because I do believe negotiations are still ongoing in West Virginia. They haven't gotten back to me. 
But essentially, the Virginia MOU lays out, you know, they have they have a little bit more money than North Carolina is getting. So they, you know, lay out like, you know, a couple million dollars go to this organization for water quality testing, mitigation, that sort of stuff. So they've already laid out where the money is going. So they have a clear idea of how their mitigation projects are going to go. North Carolina doesn't. So that's I think that's going to be a key thing to look out for. When and Virginia's was signed not by the governor's administration. It was like the essentially the they're environment like secretary. The, yeah, their yeah. environment secretary. So that's another odd thing. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, with West Virginia, is it also going to be signed by their kind of environmental agency? And I've been going through, you know, they have a couple. So we're still trying to figure out what agency is in charge of it. Um, you know, is it their governor's office? There's a lot of unknowns with that. So Virgi- West Virginia is still up in there, but Virginia's is very much clear it's it's a six-page mou compared to north carolina's which is i think only three or four so it's substantially different the other uh thing that we thought the legislature might take up this week was gen x and will uh what ended up happening is that the house went home without doing anything uh so um, tell us about what happened in the lead up to that and uh and why the house is now kicking this to a committee yeah, this just uh, continued uh, Governor Cooper's uh, angry week with the legislature. Um, he was really hoping... Angry year. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, angry year. Uh, but, um, yeah, we, back in January, we had this bill from the House that would have um, done a lot of what Cooper had asked for to fight this water pollution issue. Not everything, um, but a lot of it. You know, the the state says that it needs to hire more scientists to figure out what exactly is even in our water in terms of these emerging contaminants and other pollution like Gen X. And then also, you know, buy more equipment, do more studies, cut down on the backlog of permits that these companies have to apply for, all these sorts of things. And the the House uh, voted unanimously to pass a bill that would have done a lot of what Cooper had asked for. And so they, you know, his office was pretty pleased about that. Um, But then back in January, the Senate refused to vote on it, and then they came back this month with a very different version of the bill um, that would have basically taken away a lot of that funding. Uh, It still would have given $2.4 million to DEQ, which is under Cooper's control, but it would have been a one-time only kind of thing. And then next year, uh, not only would that funding have gone away, but DEQ's budget actually would have been cut by another million dollars. Um, so obviously Cooper and Democrats and environmental activists were not happy with that. They said that, you know, this really is just not enough. Um, but Senate, uh, stuck by it. They said, you know, we don't think we need to spend all this money. We think that the university system already has all the, uh, you know, physical and, you know, human resources that we need for this. So, you know, why, why spend the extra money on stuff we already have in the university system? Um, so that's kind of the divide you got. Uh, Senate passed their bill, sent it to the House, and then kind of like the Senate did back in January this month, the House refused to vote on it and just left town. Um, and they won't be coming back until May, uh, May 16th, unless, you know, obviously something could change between now and then, uh, as we've seen <laughs> over the last year or so. They have found a... Uh, a newfound love of special sessions and little tiny, you know, you know, dalliances back here in Raleigh. And so who knows, maybe they'll come back. Maybe there'll be enough public outrage over this because a lot of people were really angry that like, you know, 
really? You can't even get this very minor thing taken care of on what everyone agrees is a public health crisis. You know, I mean, this is something that might cause cancer, might cause liver disease, might cause birth defects that's in the drinking water for Southeast North Carolina. You know, something that, you know, legislators have said they're very concerned about, but their actions kind of uh, say otherwise, and I suppose actions speak louder than words. Meanwhile, just real quick, the um, the Cooper's administration is basically saying that the company spewing this uh, Genex is not really doing what it's been told to do. Um, yes, they have sent out um, two uh, notices of violations, and while that might seem kind of drab and blah, that's one of the more strict things that DEQ can do is send out what's called a notice violation, basically lays out like, hey, company, in this case, Chemors, uh, which is a spinoff of the chemical giant DuPont down in Fayetteville. Um, you, you know, we've told you guys that you have this pollution. You have not taken steps really to address it. They have stopped discharging things directly into the water, but apparently there's still a lot of um, ditches and other things around the facility that are just kind of covered in this stuff that the state wants them to dig up because it's still leaking through the dirt into the groundwater. And the state's saying that the company hasn't done that. It's still apparently um, shooting this pollutant off into the air, which is new. Um, they, they had talked about it before, but this is the first time the state really kind of came down, uh, you know, and told them to stop shooting it into the air as well as into the water. And apparently the, com the company not only hasn't done what the state has been asking it to do for the last several months. It also hasn't even been able to provide the state with a plan or tell it, okay, well, yeah, so we haven't started, but here's our idea. Apparently it hasn't even started. So, um, but can it uh, do anything more than send a strongly worded letter? The state is pretty much just stuck with sending a strongly worded letter. They can find this company $25,000 and to someone like you or me, that's a lot of money. Um, I looked up uh, Chemor's financial statements, uh, since they're a publicly traded company, that's all public record. In the first nine months of 2017, they made just short of $520 million. And I did the math on that, and that comes out to $25,000 that they made in profits, not just revenues, profits, about every 20 minutes. So a $25,000 fine to them is like, you know, finding you or me, you know, 50 cents for doing something. You know, it's not really anything that we're going to be too concerned about. But that's as much as the state is legally able to fine uh, by state law. So unless, you know, the legislature, uh, you know, changes that law, that's pretty much, uh, you know, what, what DEQ's hands are tied with. Okay. Well, uh, from one depressing topic into another, um, after the school shooting this week, there was uh, a couple of uh, pieces of fallout from this in North Carolina. And this has gotten, these things have gotten kind of predictable. There's, there's a shooting. Um, people immediately, um, you know, clamor for gun control laws, and people immediately start um, blaming politicians for taking contributions from the NRA. Uh, and in this case, uh, the, uh, a lot of this fell on uh, Richard Burr and Tom Tillis, uh, who were number two and number four on one list of the biggest uh, recipients uh, or beneficiaries of NRA money. Um, and then uh, the other thing that we saw yesterday in the wake of this school shooting uh, was uh, Representative Larry Pittman, state representative, Republican, 
making some statements about what we should do about it. Um, so Colin, uh, tell us about what Representative Pittman said. Yeah, the issue, uh, not terribly surprisingly, came up um, in a legislative committee meeting on emergency management on Thursday. Uh, they had a couple of presentations about different uh, safety things, and a lot of people were tying it into you know what had just happened in Florida. Uh, and at the end of the meeting, uh, Larry Pittman uh, raised his hand and asked that uh, in the next committee meeting that they hear from a police officer that he and uh, Representative Michael Speciali have been talking to, uh, who wants to give a presentation about the idea of arming and training uh, school teachers and administrators uh, so that they could take out a shooter um, in a situation with attack. And I think he said it was a re reference to the hysterics uh, around uh, gun control that he was concerned by. Uh, and so that got a lot of attention. Um, but that was actually sort of a more mainstream statement, I guess you could say, than what we heard from him on, um, on Facebook later in the day when uh, someone brought to our attention a comment he had made on another person's post uh, on Facebook. And Andy, you've got the, uh, the words, I guess. I have it here pulled up. First, well, first, let me say my stepmom is a teacher and arming her would be uh, more dangerous than, uh, than not arming her at this point. Uh, anyway, his Facebook comment says... <clears throat> it, hope, she's, was, hope she's not a frequent listener. Uh, <laughs> Questioning she, her marksmanship. She, yes, I am. Uh, she, she would agree. Uh, anyway, so he, uh, Larry Pittman, appears to have been responding to a friend's post um, that showed an image of uh, a, a young man with a, uh, I think a hammer and sickle shirt. Anyway, it was one that was widely distributed after the shooting and um, proven to be not the shooter. Um, so uh, he's commenting on, he thinks it, that the shooter is, is this guy uh, wearing a hammer and sickle shirt. Um, it actually wasn't, but Pittman's comment was, quote, not surprising to see <laughs> the people depicted on his T-shirt. So many of these shooters turn out to be communist Democrats that I suspect they are doing these things to push for gun control so they can more easily take over the country. All right. So um, he, I assume, has gotten some uh, pushback and criticism over some of yeah, these Yeah, Democrats are, are, a lot of people, I think beyond Democrats, are not terribly uh, thrilled with his statements on this. Of course, this is a guy who's not terribly uh, stranger to controversy. This is the same legislator who once uh, compared Abraham Lincoln to Adolf Hitler not that long ago. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of mobilization I've noticed on Twitter for Democrats who are eager to uh, support the two Democrats uh, who are vying to, to run against Pittman this year. Uh, so we'll see more from that. And I uh, saw a few national outlets picked up on uh, Pittman's comments. So he's famous again. Warren, uh, it's not, it wasn't a reaction to the shooting, um, but at the same time, lawmakers have been talking a little bit about um, whether the legislative building needs more security. You, there's been a couple developments on that lately. Um, are we going to see metal detectors at the legislative building? That's what we've been told. Um, yeah, so the... The Legislative Services uh, Officer Paul Coble, along with um, Chief of Poli General Assembly Chief of Police uh, Martin Brock and others, have been looking at, you know, what kind of security upgrades does the General Assembly need? Because right now, you know, if you walk into the building, it's you know rightfully called the People's Building, um, and you can just come on in. You don't you don't get uh, frisked. You don't get uh, you know asked to search your bag or anything like that, like you would at a courthouse or even across the street at the state capitol. Uh, so it's been a long time coming, but metal detectors have been in the talks for quite quite some time. Um, and in December, we kind of got a little bit more of a clue that they are indeed coming. 
Uh, they just don't tell us when, and we haven't found out. I've sent you know multiple requests for that information from Mr. Coble and uh, Chief Brock. Haven't really heard much, um, but we got one clue this week. Um, some nice little blue tape across the floor of the entrance to the General Assembly and then in the back entrance going towards the uh, legislative office building. boxes that very much look like the size of a box that would hold a metal detector. Yes, um, but we don't know when those metal detectors are coming. I, I assumed, because they popped up like Monday or Tuesday, so I assumed, you know, the metal detectors would come overnight. Um, but as of yesterday, they had not yet you know, come to the legislative building. And from my understanding, we might not even be using them for quite some time because, you know, everyone's getting new cards to help get access to the building. So there's a lot of changes happening, but no one knows when it's going to happen. I mean, even staff members I've been trying to find out, you know, some of the information from, they they don't know. So it's, it's a very, it's a very well-kept secret in the General Assembly. You wrote that legislators are able to get um, panic buttons. Yeah. So that's been a longstanding tradition. Um, I talked to one legislative assistant actually just because I wanted to, you know, these buttons exist because I had no idea that, you know, you can get it either in the lawmaker's office or at their assistance desk. Um, so it's just a little panic button underneath the desk where you hit it and then it goes straight to General Assembly Police and they come and help you out. But that's been there for a while. But I had no idea. And I, you know, spent a lot of time sitting in offices talking with the LAs and lawmakers. And I did not realize that they just had panic buttons chilling out. So. No one's ever hit it while you were in there. That's no. To your, I did. To your I did credit. ask the LA to show me her panic button, and she's like, "Oh no, no, no! I don't want to accidentally, you know, trip it." I'm like, "Okay, fine. That's yeah. understandable." Yeah. So, is the legislature a gun-free zone? Um, does anybody know if guns are allowed? Yeah, you're not allowed because I've I've known there's been some. Uh, <laughs> since we're on the subject of Larry Pittman, <laughs> I may as well tell this story from a couple of years ago. Um, there was one day where uh, Pittman was on the floor and he had what looked like a bulge uh, around his near his waist that uh, looked like it could be he was carrying a gun and he had it tucked under his shirt or his jacket. Uh, someone tweeted a picture of him and insinuated that, which would have been a violation of building rules even for lawmakers. Uh, and Pittman, very upset, uh, actually responded to the tweet in a floor speech uh, where he explained that he carries his cell phone in a camera case uh, that's strapped to his belt. Uh, and that's the bulge that people were seeing. And it was not a gun and he was not violating any rules. Okay. Although I have seen Pittman out in public where he does exercise his First Amendment right and openly carry a weapon. That's the second. Second Amendment. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Get the, my first, confused. the first is also very important. Um, <laughs> well, in Pittman's mind, that's the First Amendment. The first Amendment is the second important. Um, so uh, the other thing we should talk about uh, before we go to headliner of the week is uh, at UNC, Tucker Carlson is coming to speak. And uh, this has raised a, a sort of a minor uproar. Um, so, Danielle, do you want to tell us about what's happening there uh, since, since you are uh, a UNC student? Yeah, so this, um, this is a park lecture. It's held every year at the journalism school, um, and they, they selected Tucker, Tucker Carlson this year. This is, I believe, the third year that they've selected somebody from Fox News. Um, so there have been mixed reactions, definitely some people and professors saying, you know, we want to have a dialogue and whether or not they agree with them. It's, you know, good to have an open conversation. Um, others, you know, kind of... Um, I guess comparing this, you know, to the the Daily Tar Heel is also having an anniversary um, weekend this weekend or next weekend, and they're bringing you know other journalists from the New York Times and other publications. And there were some comments about you know, well, we should bring people who are not making commentary, people who are doing you know, unbiased reporting coverage. So 
Um, you want to chime in on your thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, because I'm not currently enrolled in the uh, journalism school and haven't been for a while, I can be a little bit more opinionated about this. And I was quick to jump on this story on, on Twitter the other day. Um, my take as a, a you know UNC Journalism School alum and a journalist is that you know, the, the best people you can invite to a journalism school to teach young journalists are people who are actively doing journalism, pulling a, you know new information out and you know doing investigations and holding people accountable, which there's a ton of UNC alums and Daily Tar Heel alums that are, are doing just that in, in today's media landscape at the national level. And for them to invite sort of a partisan commentator, which I've Personally, I don't view these cable news folks either on the right or the left. I'm certainly not sing out, singling out Carlson for his conservative views. Uh, I, I view them more as commentators than, than journalists. And uh, either Carlson or, or Rachel Maddow or anybody else I think would be great for a political science lecture um, because certainly they've got an interesting take on uh, today's politics. But for journalism lectures at the journalism school funded by the journalism school, it just seems like it would make sense to get people who are actually journalists. I don't know if you expect uh, that there'll be any protests or anything like this, but it is the, I would think, one of the early lectures under this new law that uh, deals with free speech on campuses. Um, so it just would be interesting. Yeah, I don't know if anyone's going to try to shout him down um, like they might some people who are perhaps even more controversial than that. I don't know if UNC has had anybody who's uh, been more of a polarizing figure than Tucker Carlson, but they may have. When I was there, uh, Roger Ailes came to speak uh, to the journalism school, and there were some kind of mild protests, but, you know, no one really shouting or, you know, storming the building or anything. There was also, uh, they had former U.S. Congressman Tom Tancredo come. Oh, yeah, that, I, was, that? I was a student then. That was He got shouted down and actually wasn't able to finish his speech. Not just shouted down. People, like, somebody threw a brick through the window. Yeah, there was some there was violence. Like yeah. It was, it was insane. Um uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know if we can expect anything of that level for uh, for Tucker Carlson's speech. But I remember when Ailes came, you know, they they had it, you know, set up on stage with a couple of uh, student journalists interviewing him in kind of a you know roundtable fashion, and it wasn't too enlightening. He he didn't seem very interested in really participating. I don't know if uh, Tucker Carlson will be more uh, interested in you know doing something interesting and, you know, uh, being there, or if he's just kind of there to spout off uh, his talking points or what. But Yeah, on the protest point, um, there. well, this is sort of the main journalism lecture, so it remains to be seen with with the new law of what, what's going to happen with lectures run out of the journalism school. But I know in the past there have been, this year, there have been a couple controversial people. The one that sticks out in my mind was uh, Sebastian Gorka. He's a former, I think, advisor to the Trump campaign. Um, and there was definitely some protests there. It's, but it's definitely been a lot more muted this year, I feel like. Um, but but there was definitely a lot of people standing outside signs and shouting. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. I'm not sure where people would even stand in the journalism school because it's usually on the third floor and so they'd have to be like in the building but that's we'll right see. i forgot about the yeah. Gorka speech that had happened yeah that was pretty controversial too, so yeah. which politifact fact check by the way they did we did <laughs> you can did. see uh how we rated his claim about <laughs> iran on our website politifact.com slash north carolina okay all right i'm glad we got that uh in so um We'll uh, take a break and go to Headliner of the Week, but uh, um, Danielle, uh, let's do one more clip with um, the retiring Mickey Mishaw. Um, what uh, is this one going to be uh, him talking about? So this clip is about his relationship with, with Martin Luther King Jr., as I uh, mentioned earlier, and sort of his involvement with politics because of 
first off Martin Luther King Jr.'s egging him on and then his death and, and how that sort of evolved. All right, let's listen, and then we'll be right back with Headliner of the Year. I knew Martin's brother before I knew him, A.D. Mm -hmm. uh, he and I were in boarding school together. Mm -hmm. uh, but I got to know Martin, I guess, near the end of the Montgomery bus boycott mm -hmm. in October of 1956. And I invited him to Durham uh, to be the main speaker at a, at a rally that we were having at the time. And uh, we sort of hit it off uh, I guess the impetus that could have been my mother's cooking because he stayed at the house and uh, uh, he just seemed to enjoy that. But we, we, we began to talk and uh, it was just one of those things that he had two guys sitting talking and they seemed to be on uh, some level of, 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 of togetherness. And uh, it, it was just one of those things that developed. And uh, over the years, uh, when we would talk, when we would get together, he, anytime he came to North Carolina, he was always, we were always together. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes people didn't even know he was here, that, 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 that happened. But uh, he would talk, we would talk about what progress there was to be made, how it was to be made. Uh, and, he, and one of the things he, he kept, I guess, beating in my mind and things that he had said, I had heard him say in many speeches that African Americans needed politics more desperately than any other group in American society. <coughs> and he said, because what happens there is that, that we need a seat at the table where the rules are being made. If you're not there, you can't have any impact on that. And I and one day uh, we were sitting talking, and Martin looked at me and said, you know, man, he said, you make a good politician. I said, Martin, you're out your ever-loving mind. It never <laughs> happened. Well, it did happen. In 1964, uh, uh, I, I decided, I called Martin, I said, look, I'm going to try something. He said, well, go ahead on. Uh, let's see what happens. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. Who's hot? We're back with headliner of the week, everybody's favorite segment where we talk about who the most important or influential or interesting person in this week's news will be. Um, will Doran, who's your headliner of the week? Well, I'm going to kind of stick on the UNC angle and I'm going to go with uh, Rye Barcott. Uh, he's not really a name that a lot of people know, uh, but he's going to be the UNC graduation speaker this year. Um, I covered the graduation last year when Brooke Baldwin was the speaker, um, and it, it's always an interesting thing. He is, uh, but he's obviously not anywhere near as well known as Brooke Baldwin. He's a he's an alum and is a, a veteran and is uh, has this group that's trying to get more veterans to run for office, kind of on on both sides of the aisle, and it's interesting to see UNC going for him for the commencement speaker, trying to, you know, uh, kind of thread this needle in this, you know, highly polarized political age of, you know, someone trying to kind of, like, find a, you know, I don't know, third way is the <laughs> the right word for that, or, but, you know, kind of a, a more moderate uh, strand of politics, um, and 
uh, my commencement speaker was uh, Michael Bloomberg, uh, who uh, actually he was protested just as much as <laughs> Tom Tancredo or Sebastian Gorka or anybody like that. Um, uh, you you can never make all the over big happy. gulps. I would guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was that was during the whole soda tax thing, and yeah, I think people were unhappy with stop and frisk policies and things. Yeah, um, you can never make the kids happy. Um, <laughs> Says the curmudgeonly twenty five year old. But um, but yeah, it, it's uh, it's an interesting choice. Someone who's not really a celebrity, not really a super well known politician, but is uh, someone who's you know kind of in the in the trenches, which is definitely a departure. But I thought that was pretty interesting, so I'll give him a shout out on headliner of the week. All right, Rye Rye Barcott. Barcott. Ryan Barcott. Ryan Barcott. Rye. Rye. Like the bread. Me, that's what I thought you said. Rye Barcott. <laughs> <laughs> or the whiskey. The bread. The whiskey. Rye Barcott in the head in the hat for headliner of the week. All right. Uh, Andy Spay, who's your headliner of the week? Uh, I'm going to go with Ludacris. I don't know if you guys heard, but (laughs) he is performing at the North Carolina Azalea Festival. And if you don't know what that is, that is in Wilmington on the coast, and it it has a colonial theme. There are girls in antebellum dresses, (laughs) and I do not – what I want to know – is how they arrived at the decision to invite <laughs> Ludacris, the rapper. And I've been going through some of his song lyrics to see if I could read them on air. And we can't. We definitely can't. Wilmington <laughs> <laughs> well, we gets some weird performers all the time. So that's, you know, that's right up there with Wilmington performers. So. All right. The Azalea Festival is going to be lit. Uh, is that the first time Jordan's ever saying it's lit on the podcast? Do we have a dome cast first? Could have gotten that in the headliner drum roll if he'd if we'd said that a few weeks ago. Uh, all right, Ludacris in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner of the week? I don't have a who. I have a what. And I'm going to go with the Atlantic Coast Pipeline because it is the gift that keeps on giving mostly to journalists and Republicans, and it gives a lot of headaches to the Democrats. Um, But I just think it's, you know, I think it's something we're going to be talking about for months and years to come as construction starts and, you know, trees start going down and some of these mitigation projects start happening. So I just think we're going to, I think we're just in the beginning phases of what is going to happen in North Carolina. So with all the news that's been happening with it this week, it's my headliner. Okay, Atlantic Coast Pipeline uh, in the news a lot this week, and uh, now in the hat for headliner of the week, Danielle Chimtab, who's your headliner of the week? Okay, so my headliner is is a group of people, say the drunk uncles of the world. Uh, So Governor Cooper was writing a letter to Amazon to convince them to come to the state, Um, and this was actually uh, released well, this was back in 2017, but um, news organizations just got a copy of the letter through public records. Um, and he said, like every family with an embarrassing uncle or two, we have a few politicians who want it to be 1957 instead of 2017. And then goes on to talk about how the state ha- still has a welcoming culture. So I'm going to put uh, drunk uncles. Uh, I guess he didn't say drunk. He said embarrassing. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't, I don't think it right. was drunk uncles. I think it's, it's the implied, you know? <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Saturday Night Live. Everybody's you can't have the embarrassing uncle without been, the drunk uncle. Everybody's part. been to a Thanksgiving with the, the crazy uncle or the drunk <laughs> uncle, and, you know. Okay. All right. So it's technically, uh, are we doing uh, crazy uncles? Sure. Or, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Crazy uncles <laughs> in the <laughs> crazy uncles are in the hat for headliner of the week. They they may be going to the Ludacris concert. Um, <laughs> they at the Azalea Festival. To uh, right. Yeah. So <laughs> crazy uncles, Ludacris, and uh, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, and Rye Barcott. 
Uh, all in the hat for headliner of the week. So Colin Campbell, top that. Who's your headliner of the week? All right. I got a bit of a twofer because I can't decide between these two folks. Uh, there were two um, legislative uh, retirements announced in the past. Well, they were announced within the past week, but they came to my attention within the past week and really kind of didn't get a whole lot of attention. Uh, I feel like kind of fell below the radar a little bit. Um, and they are uh, Representative Beverly Earl, who is a Democrat from Mecklenburg, one of the uh, members of the African-American caucus, uh, I believe a former educator. She is not running for another term. Um, and she has been in the House for 12 terms, uh, making her, I think, behind Mickey Mishaw, who we've heard from on this podcast, uh, the second most senior member uh, of the House. Uh, so she will not be seeking another term. No one's announced for her seat yet. Uh, and on the other end of the political spectrum, uh, Representative Jeff Collins, a Republican from Nash County and one of the more uh, staunch conservatives in the legislature, also been in uh, office for quite a while since 2011, uh, is not going to be running for another term. Now, his uh, district, I think, was redrawn in a way that uh, makes it a little bit more competitive for uh, Democrats. So uh, instead of running, he's backing another Republican by the name of John Check. Uh, and there's a Democrat who'd run against Collins in the past, James Galliard, who's a Rocky Mountain minister. Uh, he'll be running for that seat, but uh, we'll be losing some institutional knowledge with uh, Representative Beverly Earl and Representative Beth- Jeff Collins stepping down. So they were my picks this week. Okay, Beverly Earl and Jeff Collins in the hat for headliner of the week. A lot of uh, seniority leaving, and um, I guess this happened last time around to um, several notable senators especially um, stepped down last term, but uh, with Mishaw, with Earl, um, with Angela Bryan, a lot of members especially of the Black Caucus are, um, are not running for another term, um, but also others, the Collins, um, we've written about a few others. So, um, all right, Beverly Earl and Jeff Collins, uh, Crazy Uncles and Rye Barcott, and the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which is what I'm going to go with. Uh, this week as the headliner. Uh, so, Lauren, you are our winner again. Two weeks uh, in a row, baby. The, uh, Keep the street uh, going. On the Domecast. <laughs> um, Atlantic Coast Pipeline, and I'm sure we'll be talking more about that in the weeks to come. So, uh, for Colin Campbell and Lauren Horsch, Danielle Chemtop and Will Doran, and Andy Spay, I'm Jordan Schrader. Catch us next week on Domecast. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.